0: Welcome to The Way Podcast. I'm your host Steve, thank you for joining me. Hey everyone, welcome to this end of year podcast mini-series hosted on my channel The Way. I am going to be going through a piece of text from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, starting at verse 25. It's often called the Parable of the Good Samaritan, Uh, but I want to have a look at it together with you guys, and hopefully you'll see it's a little bit more, I think, than just a story about a Good Samaritan. Um, And so I'm going to read through this passage of text, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, and I want to share some thoughts with you. Um, I have been watching myself and so many of the rest of us as we have engaged with each other in person and online this year. And I know it's been a tough year for so many people. Goodness me, I've seen people lose like almost everything. Uh, We've seen on the other end of the spectrum, people gaining like ridiculous amounts through this pandemic. And we've seen arguments over vaccinations and mask wearing and all the rest of this sort of rubbish. Um, And we just don't seem to be doing so well as we engage with each other, especially when we differ, especially when we're not even sure we like each other. I'm talking about, you know, it's like the human race here. And so it's really got me thinking about how we behave in a neighborly fashion towards each other or how we don't. And this piece of text has just kind of been burning in my mind, um, looking at whether it has anything to offer us in terms of how we behave more neighborly What does it mean to behave more neighborly? Are there any surprises in store for us? And I'm specifically interested in this church season of Advent. Uh, You might not be familiar with church seasons if you're listening to this. It's a little bit more of kind of the traditional church to follow the the seasons. And there's different kind of themes that come out in the seasons. But the whole idea of Advent is this fourth or so week um, period of time leading up to the actual celebration of Christmas Day. And the word Advent comes comes originally from the Latin, um, and it means uh, sort of waiting on an arrival of something. Uh, it essentially means the arrival or the coming of something. And so there is this built into this uh, this season of Advent is this waiting, this anticipation that we're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And when and when I talk about celebrating the birth of Jesus, I'm talking about Being caught up in the idea of Jesus who draws near to us, Jesus who comes as the ultimate expression of neighbor, who comes alongside us, who comes to dwell with us. There's this idea of cohabitation, the one who chooses to live alongside us, within us, around us. And I'm going to get to that in the second session the idea of Jesus as neighbor. But I want to dig into this text and have a look at the story, in fact, stories of what's going on here, um, and see what it has to share with us. So hopefully that's a bit of a, enough of a background before we get going into kind of the details of this. Um, I've got some notes here, so this is sort of mostly scripted, what I'm going to be sharing with you every now and then you'll hear, there we go, that's, uh, that's the wonderful rustling of papers. You also might hear in the background, I've got a guest with me tonight, uh, Chrissy the Christmas Cricket, who seems to have uh, infested my, maybe with his friends, I don't know, infested my uh, recording area, so every now and then you might hear him chirping up. Uh, Apologies for that, I have tried to get him to shut up and leave the building, but he won't. So, Chrissy the Christmas Cricket is going to join us for this recording. Anyway, I digress, goodness me, I hope this is not a whole recording of those. It's somewhat scripted. I might just go off track every now and then. I'll try to bring it back. But the idea is to look at the text, to see what it has to say to us, to try and pull out some sort of bits and pieces of meaning that we can chew on in terms of Advent and in terms of our, our immersing ourselves in something, something transformative as we look towards you know, December 25th where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. So along the lines of that, I think I'm going to share with you quickly um, a disclaimer that I usually put out when I speak publicly. And it's very simple, this disclaimer. It has two parts to it. Let me just quickly pull it up. The first is that um, I don't claim to know everything. Okay? So just in case any of you want to think, oh my goodness, what on earth is he on about? Let me phone him up and berate him for what he has to say. I am not claiming at the beginning of this recording that I know everything. So if you've joined me for this episode, you have no idea who I am. You have no interaction with any of my previous content. I want to warn you, please don't turn off your heart or your brain as you listen. It's really important that you engage critically with what I have to share with you. I've done as much homework as I can. I have thought and I have prayed and I have tried to to really immerse myself in this piece of text and beyond that, I am really, really, I'm trying to stick close to the God that I know that I believe is alive, who speaks, who is present, who presences God's self in and around me. Um, and I'm doing my best to faithfully transmit what I, what I feel and what I've seen and what I've heard and what I can't unsee and unhear any further you know, in my walk with God. But uh, it's not necessarily foolproof. So don't turn off your brain or your heart. And I mention those two specifically because I think they they do different things for us. I'm not one of those don't trust your heart uh, sort of Christian folks. I think that's a bit silly. Anyway, that perhaps in another episode of something else. Second point I want to share with you is very simple. I believe that any kind of exercise like this is not meant to tie up this text in a pretty little bow. And just present it to you where there are no rough edges, no remaining questions, no work for you to do. I follow the advice of somebody that I look up to in terms of this called Rob Bell. You may have your thoughts on him. I don't care. I think this is really helpful what he has to say. He says, and he's talking specifically in kind of, I guess, a church gathering thing, but you know, I'm, I'm following some of that uh, format here tonight. So a sermon, he says, is meant to be only the first word on something. It is meant to initiate a process. It's meant to draw you into something where, where the person, when the person speaking is finished, your work starts. And so that's what I want to suggest to you as part of my disclaimer. But when I'm done, when you're done listening to this uh, recording and any of the other subsequent ones in the series, that's when your work starts. I don't want to provide you with a neat, easily sort of tied up in a little bow package here that's just pointless. I'm not going to do all the work for you. I want to ask some critical questions. I might even ask some things and sn- speak nothing. Speak no further on them. Just leave the question there. It's so important and so good for us to chew on stuff and see where it takes us. And by I mean, what I mean by that is not just like thinking rationally in your brain, but I think we should be we should be engaging with our brain and our heart. We should be praying and we should be waiting for God to really speak because I think that's what, uh, that's what matters at the end of the day, um, is that we have that present tense relating going on. So that's a quick word in terms of the uh, disclaimer. I'm going to read the text to you now just so that you can listen to it. And I highly recommend this as a practice, that, uh, that, that you listen to texts as they're read out. I just feel like it gives a life to it that we don't always get by just reading clinically. But I, what I would also suggest is that um, once I've finished, just pause, take a moment, and then read it through for yourself slowly. Spend some time on the words. Spend time paying attention to what comes up. What characters do you see? What phrases, what turn of phrase, what jumps out at you, where do you think? What? That's crazy. What a stupid thing to say. Oh, what a ludicrous position. Wow, that's amazing. Whoa, that really fits with what I think. Whoa, that's very challenging. Whatever it is, I suggest spend a bit of time in the text. You know, when I when I talk with people about, you know, when they're preparing to talk on text, I I follow the advice of somebody that I looked up to who, who I knew in ministry for a while who said when he prepares to preach on something, he reads the text anywhere between 80 to 100 times. I've been trying to do that up to like 40 to 50, and that's quite a big ask. But the more time you just immerse yourself in a piece of text, you start to pick up things that you wouldn't maybe have seen on the first read, or second read, or even tenth read. So as you're listening to me now, and as you hear me read through this text, when I'm done, I suggest pause and read it through a couple more times for yourself before you continue. Just a thought, use it, don't use it. The other thing I'll share with you quickly just before I get into reading of the text is this, an idea of what to expect in this series. So this is going to be probably the bulk of what you hear from me, just only me, is this episode. I am going to do a follow-up one with a couple other thoughts. And then I've got two episodes uh, with some friends who've joined me uh, and my friend Timothy Victor, who I've been working on the Urban Mystic podcast. We get into talking about two of the characters in the parable, uh, the priest and the Levite, and talking a little bit about institutional religion and what is kind of going on in this parable and what do we see in institutional... Re- oh, did you hear that? Chrissy the Christmas cricket. Sorry. Goodness me. So in that episode, we get into talking about institutional religion and what's kind of going on and what do we see in the paragraph and what does that mean for us in terms of being neighborly. Shh, Chrissy. Quiet. And then I'm the second episode uh, with guests, I'm joined by John van der Laar, Uh, And Dion Foster. Uh, Dion is a lecturer at Stellenbosch University. He's the head of systematic theology, if I'm correct. It'll be in the show notes. John van der Laa is an ex-Methodist minister um, who now runs an online community. Um, Really, really exciting stuff happening there at evofaith.com. You can go and check out kind of what they're up to. Um, And we have a really awesome conversation around our digital lives, because we've had to do so much of that this year. Um, And we talk about how can we be more neighborly in our digital lives, our online selves, okay? So you can go and check those out as well. All of this should just release at the same time. Okay, hopefully that is more than enough. Intro, let's read the text, and then we're going to talk about what's going on here. And I might throw a shoe at Chrissy the Christmas Cricket. Okay, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, the parable the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Okay, so that's the text that we're going to have a look at. There's kind of so much going on there that I will never get a chance to to really plumb the depths of absolutely everything. And so if you're hearing things and I'm not speaking to that, fantastic. Go and have a good think and a pray and a read and a research and, and go and wrestle with whatever it is that's come up if I don't speak on it at all. But I wanna focus on the two stories that are going on in this piece of text. And we're gonna go through them, story one by one. Uh, Story one and story two, sort of verse by verse rather. Um, And then see if we can draw out a couple of things um, and and see where they point us. So, story number one is what I'm gonna call the lawyer and the Samaritan, all right? It starts in verse 29 and continues on almost to the end. So let's have a look through, okay? If we start in verse 29, the first thing that we notice is that there is a level of conflict going on here. That there's a level of self-assertion, of self-righteousness going on here from this expert in the law, okay? The text says he wanted to justify himself okay and as we go through each of these verses i'm going to just point out language that we should feel the weight of because sometimes i think when we read the bible we're not aware of the full weight of the language of what's going on here sometimes it can be just a little bit sanitized or it we can just be an easy read like oh he wanted to justify himself but no he he is looking to make his own point and go no 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 no, but hang on i want to something and you've got to pay attention to this i want to make sure that my position is right all right so this is the question then so who is my neighbor okay that's going to be important we're going to come back to that who is my neighbor all right so as we get into the story there's a couple of things going on here okay um there's this dude and he's traveling down a road, all right, and something terrible happens, all right? He falls into the hands of robbers. He doesn't go out looking to get beaten up. He's not hoping for a terrible day at the office. Something happens to him, and it's terrible. He gets beaten. He's left naked, half dead on the side of the road, all right? And you've got to sense kind of the power of the narrative, of what's going on here, okay, stories are so important because they can be laden with meaning, but they show, are often laden with like emotional suspense and tension, and you know some some of us may have been hearing this story since we were five or six or something going to you know Sunday school or whatever you might have called it in your church tradition. But there's something powerful going on here, and the story builds layer by layer. And I want us to be aware of that, okay? And the reason that we need to be aware of the power of narrative, of what's going on in these stories, is that narrative is a phenomenal mirror that we can hold up in front of ourselves. And the point is, as we look at ourselves in the story, we should be noticing the characters, noticing what's going on, and asking ourselves, where do I see myself here? Do I resonate with any of these characters? Do I resonate with the point of the story? Am I left out of the story? Am I challenged by the story? Okay. And so the build of the tension of what's going on here, the build of, of, of the end point of the story, of the kind of climax, we've got to see that as it starts to go. So the start of this tension, right, is a priest happened to be going down the road. Okay. The same road. So the listeners to this story, the people listening to Jesus, specifically this expert in the law, that the story is being told to firsthand. Here's the first, here's the second character, right? You've got the man who's half dead, and now you have this priest who's wandering along. And so there the, are expectations created with that. Who is a priest? Who do I know to be a priest? What do I understand of the temple system? Perhaps the lawyer is asking, like, where. Where is Jesus going with this? What is this priest going to do? He's wandering down the same road. okay. So there's this anticipation coming. What is he going to do? Or perhaps, more aptly, I would think the question might have been from this expert in the law, this lawyer, let's call him the lawyer to make it easier. How is this guy going to fix this situation? There's an anticipation of the priest enters... He's one of us. He's one of our upper class. He's, he's one of our go-to people, right? What's he going to do in this situation? He must do something. He's part of the religious class. A couple of things to point out here that's really important. So my take, my understanding of who is the person asking Jesus this question, this expert in the law, Okay, it's highly likely that he's a Pharisee because of the question he asks Jesus about eternal life. Sadducees don't believe in eternal life. The Pharisees did, okay? But also, you've got this cool little tidbit of information where the Pharisees used to call themselves... Where is that note? They called themselves the Chabarim, all right, in Hebrew. Translation of that would be the neighbor. They thought of themselves as the neighbors, all right this comes from a German theologian Emil Schurer and his book on the history of the Jewish people in the time of Christ um and so this expert all right would probably be part of the pharisaical class and they think of themselves as these neighbors all right but they also think of themselves as incredibly special and holy and so they would probably be resonating with this priest character right cuz in, in kind of the, the, the sort of life and times where the story is being told, you've got this kind of three-level tiered rea- reality to the social structure of Israel. You've got priests who occupy the top spot. They're super important, of super, super importance amongst them, are obviously the chief priests, okay? Pharisees are in the priest class. Underneath them, you've got the Levites, okay? All right? So we would say, what do I want to say, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. Okay, so they're the second rung down. And at the bottom of that, you've just got your everyday Israelite. Just the guys who are just muddling along, just you and me, they're, they're just kind of the normal people in society there, all right? So this lawyer hears the priest is coming along. We must hear already how loaded this is. Because it's loaded towards the side of the religious establishment. These are the people who seem to be right with God. They are the special ones, the holy ones, the separated ones. Also the ones who would understand themselves as the neighbor. And so there is this anticipation. What is this holy man going to do? And so we might not feel it probably the initial hero of the story, shock and horror, he passed by on the other side. You have to feel the weight of that statement to understand what's going on in this story. He sees this guy, he comes to where the guy is, half dead, in the road, and he passes by on the other side okay now there's there's weight in that, and we have to go back to the earlier verses also to understand this this additional weight. A man was going down from Jerusalem to jericho okay i've wondered for a long time what on earth is going on in those verses there? Why is it so important in this story? I mean it's a story for goodness' sake, it can teach us a moral lesson without needing that kind of detail why why what's so important about this 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 road, Jerusalem to Jericho. okay. So I uncovered a couple of things here. The first one I'll share with you now. The other one I'll come to later. This road that goes through the desert is a very exposed place. It's very barren. It's not like there's bushes and trees and stuff everywhere. So if there's a dead body in the road or if there's something going on, you're going to know about it. There is no way that the listener to this story can go, oh, well, maybe the priest didn't see him, okay? There's just nowhere to hide. But also on top of that is this road is so narrow, the road between these two points, that at some points you would actually have to step over a body to avoid it. So it would be that much in your face. The priest cannot have missed this. He can't be let off the hook. He has spotted what's going on, and he's moved on, all right? On top of that, the third point of this is that people expected there to be bandits on the road. So they're on high alert. It's not like they're wandering around along with their finger up their nose, not knowing what's going on. They're alert for what's happening out there. And so they would have spotted somebody half dead in the road, okay? So at this point, there is nowhere for this priest to hide. He has been tried. And has been found wanting. He has not responded to someone in need, even though the anticipation might be there. But hey, you know, maybe he's a really special, important guy. Maybe he had things to do. Maybe he's so holy that actually we couldn't expect that. So enter number two, the Levite. Okay? If uh, let me see, how, how can we talk about this? So priests and Levites in the traditional church. Okay, if you wanted to look at the difference between priests and Levites, you'd talk about the actual priest in a church or the minister, and the Levite would be the person who like assists them at the altar. You talk about lay ministers or uh, sacristans. There's a bunch of different language in in the more sort of you know our Protestant churches and the more sort of recent sort of ways in which church manifests maybe they're the worship leader, maybe they're the people who do coffee, maybe they're the people who help administer communion. They're not like the central pastor dude. They're on the next rung down and they help to make what happens in a church happen. All right. So the Levite is not on the same level as the priest. So so maybe he's less important. Maybe he's less holy. Maybe he's less set apart. Maybe he could deign to do something about this guy. But this is what happens, right? So Verse 32, so too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Now the English there is a little bit misleading. I'm reading out of the NIV translation. If you look at it in the Hebrew, it actually advances the story a bit. Because the priest comes, sees the guy, moves on on the other side. Okay, But in the Hebrew, what is suggested from the Levite is not just he also stumbles upon the place of the dead body and keeps going. But it suggests that he actually crosses the road to go and see the body. He actually draws closer to this half-dead guy than the priest does. And then he passes by on the other side. So if the priest is walking on the left-hand side, sees the body, keeps going, the Levites on the left-hand side, passes to the right-hand side of the road to get closer, and then back to the left-hand side and keeps going. So now we don't know what to expect. Like the very holy and the, the kind of holy or not so holy, they haven't had anything to do. They, 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 they haven't helped. And suddenly the third character comes along. So now we can imagine, like now this thing is built to the state of tension of, okay, so what is this going to mean? Or is it just going to be like a normal everyday Israelite who comes along and helps? Maybe that's just the best way we can think of, of this thing playing out. But No. Surprise, surprise, the third character who pitches up is a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. Now, I'm not going to unpack the whole history of the Samaritans and the Jews, but suffice to say, these guys didn't get along. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They called them dogs, Right? which in in an Israelite context, the Hebrew context, that's a serious insult. You call somebody a dog. They wouldn't use the same cutlery and crockery that a Samaritan had used. They wouldn't drink from the same cup, eat off the same plate. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't touch them. They wouldn't be close to them. There was huge animosity between Jews and Samaritans. So now imagine the embarrassment for the religious system. Okay, And by implication, and we're getting to this, the guy who's asked Jesus the question and who's now listening to the story. Your priest couldn't do it. Your Levite couldn't do it. We're just skipping the everyday Israelite. And we're going into the negative numbers here. Here comes a Samaritan. And he comes to where the man was. Oh, now what? Is he going to kill him? This guy's half dead. Okay. So something else about the road between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho. The Jews really believed that it was often the Samaritans who were the bandits. They're the bad guys. They're the people that we hate. They're the ones who are always trying to kill us and maim us and... Do horrible things to us. So now the tension is built to this guy is like doesn't even register on the sort of the figures of humanity here. Now, what's going to happen is you know, what, where are you going with this Jesus? Is he going to kill him? And what do you know? When he, the Samaritan, saw him, the half dead guy, he took pity on him. And then the story plays out in terms of what went to him, bandaged his wounds, etc., etc. We'll get to that. How embarrassing for the religious system of that day. How embarrassing for this lawyer who's listening to the story. His holy people couldn't fix it. Even his normal people couldn't fix this. His enemy is the one who behaves with compassion. All right. And I'm using that word compassion intentionally because it's a pity for me that, uh, as an interesting slip of the tongue, it's a pity for me that the word pity is used in verse. Thirty-three. He took pity on him. In the Greek, I think it's actually better translated as um, compassion. The Greek, yes. Goodness me, I better quickly retrace my steps for 10 minutes ago and say when I was talking about the Levite, I'm not talking about the Hebrew, I'm talking about the Greek. Those of you who picked up on that, well spotted. In the Greek, not the Hebrew. So here we go. In the Greek, the New Testament is in Greek. They use the word pity. I think it's better to be understood as compassion. And the reason I say that is because it's the same word used in a couple of other places, all right? Um, Matthew 9, 36, Jesus has compassion. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And then he goes on to heal and to teach and to touch and to reach out, okay? You get the same word in the story later on in Luke's Gospel in chapter 15, verse 20, the same word is used of the Father in the parable of this lost Son, often called the prodigal Son. When the Father sees the Son far away, he's filled with compassion. That's the language, filled with compassion. Now, this word compassion in the Greek is really interesting, and I love talking about it because I get to use the word bowels in a religious space. <laughs> And sometimes I watch people squirm, and it is so much fun, especially when I'm preaching in a church, and you just keep saying bowels, bowels, and it really puts people off. So, the Greek word, yo, I'm going to try and say this. I'm not a Greek scholar, but uh, anyway, maybe some of you can correct my pronunciation. The Greek word for compassion here is splang splangnitzomai he. It means to be moved to my bowels. And what does that mean, moved to my bowels? Does it mean bowel movement? No. Now, people at this sort of time, let's use the words the ancients, believed that your deepest emotions were located within your bowels. If you've ever had a, ever had a huge fright and you feel like, you know, people say, like, my, my heart dropped out of my bottom. My, my, you know, I just felt that in the pit of my stomach. That's what they're talking about. These feelings, these emotions, these things that strike us, that strike us deep in our core. That's where the word comes from. to be moved to one's bowels is to be struck to the to the center part of who we are, and that's what's happening here. The Samaritan, he has pity on him, he has compassion. he is moved to his very innermost part by what has happened to this guy. okay, and that word's really important. We're going to come back to it. that the Samaritan is moved this deeply, all right, and you've got to see that in contrast. Against the priest and the Levite. They do not have the same reaction. The Samaritan does. And then we see what flows out of that. So again, the this, this story keeps on building. And it keeps on building. So from there, he goes and bandages his wounds. He pours on oil and wine. He puts the man on his own donkey. He takes him to an inn. He takes care of him. The next day, he takes out two silver coins, gives them to the innkeeper. Right, he pays for the guy, and then he says, "When I return, you've got to look after this guy." If you more on that in the teaser episode, if you haven't listened to that, go and ever listen to the the character of the innkeeper. See see what you think of that. So the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, "Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any ex- extra expense you may have." That is the crescendo. That is the high point of this part of the text in the Samaritan's response. He looks after him, puts him on his donkey, takes him to help, looks after him, takes out his money to pay for the time that he's been there, and then writes a blank check. I will reimburse you for any extra expense. Not, listen, make sure you only take him to the government hospital, or make sure that you only use like those cheap disk Plasters when you look after the guy. No, 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 no. Look after him. Do what needs to be done. I wouldn't go as far as saying spare no expense, but he doesn't say just give him the bare minimum and turf him out on his ass when you're done. He says look after him, take care, and I'll reimburse you for any extra expense. This is the high point of this story. And it's built and it's built and it's built. And you've got the shame of the religious system and the priest and the Levite contrasted against this enemy who comes and shows compassion. And so the two that should have shown compassion don't. The one that should never show compassion did. And this is how he did it. It's this ridiculous crescendo. And it ends finally in the question, verse 36. Jesus says to this lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He flips the question. We have to go back to the beginning to notice this. In verse 29, when this lawyer wants to justify himself, he asks, Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's an externally motivated question. Somewhere out there, there's somebody that I might be able to love. Who is that? Point out to me, who are the people worthy of my love and my affection and my time and my talents and my money? Who is that? Jesus does not answer that question, but asks a different one at the end. Who was a neighbor? That's an internally motivated question. Don't look out there. Just ask yourself, are you the neighbor? Are you the neighbor? Are you the neighbor? Let's ask it of the priest. Were they a neighbor? I didn't ask you to love the priest. I asked you, does the priest love the broken man? Did the Levite love the broken man? Did the Samaritan love the broken man? Which one showed compassion? So Jesus flips this question around. All right, And that's the first point that I want to spend just a little bit of time on. All right, In this flip from the is to the wise, the shift from outwards to inwards. For me, this speaks of, of a concept that I've come across in, in other people's writings and I've, I've kind of been thinking about and integrating into myself for a long time. It is a concept of what we call the inner Pharisee. This part of ourselves that I see in me, and, I, you know, and I'm painfully aware of it at times, this part of me that is actually only interested in like this kind of outwards reality, what looks good on the surface, what is safe, um, what looks holy, what looks special, what looks acceptable. That's the inner Pharisee. And the inner Pharisee works their butt off to try and make sure that they're okay with themselves, with God, with others. They're forever trying to just build this outward reality. But the inward reality Is that there's an invitation to be transformed as a person, where there is no need to cultivate this desperate, sort of works oriented approach to make sure I'm okay always, to make sure I'm holy, to make sure I'm set apart, to make sure I'm right with God, right with others, right with myself. Okay? When you live with this focus on the outward, then it's easy to fall into these religious systems that we see here, the priest and the Levite. It's easy to think that this religious system, it's what's going to make me okay. It's this attempt to make ourselves okay with God, and then God is just forced to accept us. Because if I can make myself okay, well, sorry for you. You don't get to say anything. You just have to accept me as I am. But the problem with this outward focus is that it never gets to pierce inwardly. It never actually reaches our hearts. And that, for me, is the seat of real transformation. That's where the real and the authentic and the genuine happens. Not in the surface level, and the makeup. <clears throat> Not in my outward deeds and my wonderful piety. Okay, These outward systems will always fail us sooner or later. The inner Pharisee can only take you so far before you're going to be tired and worn out and desperate for some kind of break from this persona that you've built to try and sin manage or personality manage or reputation manage or whatever it is within yourself, between you and others and specifically, I think, between us and God. These outward systems can never work That's why the priest and the Levite don't get it. When it's based on this religious system of rules, and you must be like this and not like this, and all the rest of that, you haven't got a hope. Okay? These, These efforts of this inner Pharisee. What you have to do is realize and integrate this shift from the outwards to the inwards. The lawyer's question is outward. Who is my neighbor? But the real question that we have to look at, the inward focus, is will you be a neighbor? In this time of difficulty and polarity where I see that we are not behaving well towards each other and not always treating each other well, the actual question I have to face is am I going to be a neighbor? Steve, just me, without needing to change anyone else, or try to reach anyone else to make them any better, Am I going to be a neighbor? Am I willing to look at that inward transformative work, to accept that work of God that happens deep, deep within me, to lay down my outward focus, my protective shields, all the things that I try to build to save me from what I think of myself and what others might think and what God might think. Can I lay that all down and just look at the inward transformation and accept that invitation. Can I go and be a neighbor? So, I think the question in this story, part of the question is, which of these characters would this lawyer most readily resonate with? I think to begin with, they would see themselves as the priest or the Levite. But I think there's an invitation here. I think Jesus is asking this lawyer, can you see yourself in the Samaritan? Can you see yourself in the one that you don't want to see yourself in, in this enemy of yours? Can you see yourself as the one who will be the neighbor? Get away from your outward focus question. Can you look beyond the outward of the enemy and see that that person who acts compassionately towards others is actually connecting with your question about these two great commandments? We'll come back to that. Point two in the story I mentioned it earlier, this word compassion is so important. This for me is the axis on which this whole story revolves. In fact, I had a look. I don't always do kind of the numbers on this, but this was just interesting for me. There are seven verses, okay, in this story. It starts in verse 30. Yeah, Jesus starts in verse 30 and ties it up in verse 36. There are seven verses there. The compassion... Word occurs in the fourth verse. That's the central verse. Three other side, compassion happens in the middle one. But I've gone one step further, and I've counted the words in those seven verses. There are 196 of them. The halfway mark would be 98 words. The word compassion is the 97th word in this story. That, for me, just seems like beyond coincidental. That word is so important that it sits centrally, not just linguistically. But if you look at the numbers, it is right there in the very, very center. The key word to understand this, to unlock this story. Maybe I don't want to put it as strongly as that because I think, you know, there's so much going on here. But as I talk about the idea of compassion, it is so key. That word is the differentiator between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. The priest and the Levite did not express compassion. There is no heart transformation. There is no connection in them with God or with their neighbor, or I would even say with themselves, and they're able to pass on by. But the Samaritan shows us the heart, which is made tender by compassion, and that is what allows the behavior of the transformed person. That word, so important. If we want to be a neighbor... We have to understand what it is to be pierced by compassion. Okay, story number two. Hope we're doing okay here, going on a little bit long, but uh, that's okay, there's a lot going on here. Story number two. Story number two, recap. Story number one is between the lawyer and the Samaritan, right? We're looking for kind of resonance between those two. Story number two, I think, is between the, the lawyer and us. So let's have a look. Verse 25, it starts out, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, So the backdrop of this whole thing is the question of ultimate reality. How do I inherit eternal life? Okay, But just behind that seemingly innocent question is actually... A further backdrop of conflict because this lawyer stands up to test Jesus so already the dice is stacked here this is not just hey Jesus what do you think about this let's have a quick chat this is I know better than you I'm gonna catch you out and this is how I'm gonna do it all right so really interesting there's this conflict to start with but look at Jesus's response to this he doesn't buy into the conflict He doesn't take the polarity. He doesn't say, oh, okay, so you want to do that? All right, let's go. Let's go. What does he do? He looks for a connection. I think that's part of what it takes for us to be neighborly in this season, is to look for connection. There are lots of people specifically online, and (laughs) I have a bad feeling that I'm really one of them, that are just going to try and set us up for conflict. Oh, well, what a stupid idea to take a vaccine. Oh, how stupid are you not to take a vaccine? That's an invitation to conflict. Let's do this. Let's have a fight, you and I. And sometimes it's kind of set up as just, oh, we're just having a robust discussion. Bull, you are trying to have a fight. We're, we're, we're instigating this polarity stuff, okay? I saw someone today just say, you don't like what I have to say? Just unfriend me. Wow, what a helpful way to interact, guy. Really, really helpful. Say something stupid and then go, you don't like it, you can just bugger off. No, Jesus' response to this is really interesting. He asks a question. Questions are great responses to statements. Great responses to questions. It's not, okay, well, I know the answer. Get back in your box. There's an invitation from Jesus into this connection. Uh, What's written in the law, he replies how do you read it not only do i think that that deflates the immediate conflict there but there's something going on here this is an invitation to a rabbi disciple relationship that's how rabbis interact with their disciples that's how they teach they don't teach by lecturing they teach by drawing in questions the jewish folk are renowned for questions That's one of the things I love the most about kind of Israelite history and the way in which the Jews interact with God. Lots of questions. So there's this invitation to this rabbi-discipleship relationship. Come closer. Come closer. Let me ask you the question. Let's connect on this. Let's not fight about this. There's no need for that polarity. And it's this kind of attitude, it's this kind of teaching, it's this kind of relating that can lead to transformation. Not when it becomes a who can win at the cost of someone else. Let's have a win-lose argument. I win, you lose. Whoa, what a great way to, to connect with each other. What a great way to be neighborly. Let's send one person away as a loser and let's have another person blowing their trumpet because they're such a winner. We're just setting ourselves up to fail with this, guys, time and time again. If that's how we do relating to people who are different than us. Relating to people in difficult things. Relating to people in tension and conflict. If that's the way we want to set things up. <clears throat> We're in a hiding to nothing. We've got no hope here. So I love this repositioning. Come closer. Let me ask you. Verse 27. He says, okay, well, okay. So it's easy. Let, let me go to Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and I'll give you the Shema of Israel. The faith statement. All right? Uh, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 6 verse 5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Interestingly enough, in Deuteronomy, with all your mind doesn't exist. Uh, that seems to be an addition that um, this lawyer puts in or you know somehow creeps into the text. Perhaps tradition has marched on since the, the, the days of recording Deuteronomy. But that's his answer. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, okay, with a little addition. And then he says, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's, uh, that's half of a verse from Leviticus 19, verse 8. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Okay? Those are the two greatest commandments. Now, if you go and look in Matthew 22, 37, Mark 12, 29, you'll see when Jesus is asked the question, he affirms these two as the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? So this is the lawyer's answer. Oh, Good answer, Jesus says. Okay, so go for it. This is good. What a great interaction. Let me affirm you. You've done really well. Do this and you will live. And then verse 29, where we started in the first story. This guy wants to justify himself. And so it's amazing how quickly he goes off track. Because the first commandment is so clear. In fact, it's the bulk of what he says, even just numbers of words wise. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's kind of weighted towards the first one, but he just dismisses that first one of love God. And I would suggest that it's not even just the God element, but there's the love element, the compassion element. Remember from the story that we're confronted with, the axis of that story, who actually has the compassion, who then acts like God would act? He just ignores this first command. And jumps into the second part. Okay, so you want to be so clever. I'm going to try and turn this around on you again and let's get a bit conflictual again. Who is my neighbor? Come on, let's let's dig down into that, Jesus. Give me some categories. Who's in? Who's out? Who do I get to love? Who, are, who don't I? It's such a dramatic, dramatic miss of what's going on in these two commandments that he's given himself. One of my favorite authors of all time, Brennan Manning, has unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He wrote a phenomenal book called Abba's Child. If you can get your hands on it, it's in, currently it's in my top five reads of all time. He says this. This is a fantastic quote. Herein lies the genius of legalistic religion, making primary matters secondary and secondary matters primary. Herein lies the genius of legalistic religion. This is where this lawyer is going, this legalistic religion. Just give me a couple of rules that I can follow. Misses the compassion. Misses the invitation to relationship. Making primary matters secondary and secondary matters primary. He misses it completely. And in his attempt to justify himself, goes way off track. There's another quote from the same book that really really gets to me because sometimes this legalistic religion this priest levite this religious system thing you know it's set up as a way of making us feel that like these are the people that are right with god and and I think religious institutionalism when it's at its worst and sometimes even you know like heading towards its best even there it is manifesting this terrible side to itself which is we are the holy people of God. You're not. It's this in-group, out-group identity thing. It's terrible. And, and it doesn't look all that bad, right? Because on the surface, you know, the priests and Levites look like well-scrubbed up people. They look fantastic. They look good on the outside. You know, they've done all this inner, far- this inner Pharisee work to try and make themselves look great on the outside. But listen to this. Brennan Manning says, Jesus did not die at the hands of muggers, rapists, or thugs. Sounds familiar to the story, right? The robbers who came out and beat this guy half to death? Well, Brennan Manning says, Jesus did not die at the hands of muggers, rapists, or thugs. He fell into the well-scrubbed hands of deeply religious people, society's most respected members. He fell into the well-scrubbed hands. Remember that language of the guy who falls into the hands of the robbers? Jesus falls into the hands of these deeply religious people, society's most respected members, and they are the people that put out the kill order. So, if the lawyer is meant to be confronted with the Samaritan in the parable that Jesus tells, if he's supposed to look into that and just go, whoa, that's, that's quite difficult for me to accept. I'm confronted with this idea of this person so different from me. And yet they're the ones enacting God's compassion in this space. Then we, I think, are meant to be confronted with the lawyer in this second story. I think we're meant to be confronted with this guy who's asking this Jesus, Jesus these questions. I think we have to be confronted by the person who stands up to test Jesus who wants to justify himself, the person who seems to be more interested in the outside than the inside, more interested in the, um, the shape of religion than the actual substance, the transformation. And I think that's because, you know, I'm tempted by this as well. I am tempted to be one of those scrubbed up, deeply respected, deeply religious people. I'm I'm tempted to have this outside view that people can see, wow, Steve's just got it all together and he's just amazing and sure, we just want to be like Steve. You know, man, that is so tempting. It's so seductive. But when I look at this lawyer and I look at what's going on and I look at the Samaritan and I look at how he responds as opposed to the priest and the Levite, I am just confronted by the fact that if I don't have the substance If there's no real connect if I miss the invitation in these two commands to love God to connect with God to be an authentic relationship right that's the substance and then I can be an authentic relationship with myself and with others if I miss that that is at the core here if I'm going to be moved to my bowels by anything it's that it's the invitation to authentic relating to the divine to myself to others, I have to question, when am I just tempted to go take on the shape of religion, take on all the outside trappings, behave like this lawyer, test, stand up to justify, You know, try and be the winner versus the loser in arguments, perhaps even in my neighborliness, when am I tempted to, to just dismiss people because it doesn't fit with the outside picture? When am I tempted to try and uh, just kind of separate myself from people who are a little sort of questionable in whatever society or context or church or friendship circle or whatever? You know, when am I tempted to just go, no, you know, they're not really our kind of people? Whatever that is. You know, sometimes like the easiest way to look at this is just to go, okay, well, you know, what about homeless people? Oh, would you be seen as homeless people? But there, there are so many different and horrifically damaging ways in which this plays out and how we sideline others and we do not behave as neighbors because we're so worried about the shape of this thing and we're not, we haven't been pierced, we haven't been moved to our bowels by compassion we haven't bought into the substance, we haven't heard Jesus' invitation how do you read this? Come and engage with me, come and be reached by me so Just as this lawyer is invited into this interaction with Jesus. And then he's left with this invitation at the end to go on in his life as a transformed person. Remember verse 37, go and do likewise. I don't read that as like this hectic command. How dare you get this wrong now, bugger off and get it right. Go and do likewise is another invitation. Go and be wrapped up in this relational happening. Go and be wrapped up and caught up and spellbound in your relating to the divine, to God. In your relating to yourself and to others. Go and be moved to your bowels with compassion. Go and be rocked to the very core by this invitation to be transformed and live this life as a neighbor. It's an invitation that this lawyer is left with by Jesus. So... As we look at the mirror of this narrative, we're also invited to this transforming relationship. We should also hear the echoes of that words. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Come closer. Come and relate to me. What's going on? Yeah, you've got it. Do this and you will live. No, 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 no. Don't try and test me again. Let me invite you further. Listen to this story. Be confronted by the people you thought you'd resonate with as opposed to your enemy, as opposed to the person you're surprised at. Go and be confronted by the idea of compassion we're invited into a transformational relationship not a set of ideas we're gonna Tim and I are going to cover that a little bit in this episode you can jump to when you're done here on institutional religion it's not about a set of beliefs it's not about a book it's not about uh, your ideas of God it's not about the church system That's not what it is. There is a present tense relational flow, a dynamism that is our invitation. It's a flow. As there is a flow to the two great commandments, first love God, then love self and others. In fact, you can invert it sometimes and you can ask yourself the question, if I can love myself and love others, is that a way of loving God as well? The two are tied together inextricably. There's this flow from one to the other, back and forth. Okay, have a look at um, at John 3:16, for example. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. All right, there's this immediate offering of a gift, and then the follow-up to that. Right, you can love God because Jesus is here. Jesus is present. Then you jump to 1 John 4:19. We love because he first loved us. We can be present in this flow because Jesus is already present. The invitation is issued by the one who's already there. 1 John 4, 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command, verse 21. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister, listen to that flow. That just grabs me. Not because it's some command in a text, but because I can feel Jesus in this invitation. I can feel God with the handout going. I'm here, I'm here already, I'm already existing in this dynamic flow of deep compassion and love and mercy and grace and justice and peace. I'm here already, and the invitation is join me. Come and be a part of what I'm already doing. And you can do that because I'm already doing it. Come and get lost in this. And then we'll see that you're lost in this. We'll see that you're involved in this relationship because the relationship with yourself and with others is going to change. And I guess part of what the story is saying is when you look at it the other way around and you look at the priest and the Levite, you have to ask the question, is there anything deeply transformation is there anything that is piercing them to the core? That is piercing them into the depths of their being, that is that is moving them to their bowels? Oh man, I love saying that word again and again and again. <laughs> so I think part of it is a choice. There's a kind of a lifestyle thing here. If you can fall into the trappings of religion, right? The shape of things, or you can accept this invitation and just throw yourself into the substance this relationship accept that invitation so I'm going to try and just draw things to a close here and perhaps just talk a little bit about how I see us being neighborly I think the reason that we can imagine being neighborly that we can enter into the practice of being neighborly is that we've been neighbored. And I just kind of push that word neighbor to its breaking point. In Jesus, I see the God who draws near and who behaves like a neighbor to me. And so I see God differently in Jesus. I don't see a God who is separate, who is bored, who is dead, who is distant, who is separated from us. I see a God who is intimately close. I resonate with the half-dead character on the road. And I see Jesus in the Samaritan drawing close, who's, who's moved by compassion to come to me. So I have been neighbored, And I think that allows me to see myself and others differently. And I think that's then part of the invitation. If I can see God differently, And I can even see then myself as God sees me. I have an invitation to see myself differently, to love myself and to see others differently and to love others. And that this exists in this dynamic flow of God who is being and I'm being and others are being. And there is this flow between the three in those two great commandments that are picked out here. I think because of that, I can see my agency as well then. God draws near, and so I am able to draw near. And so I'm able to embrace the challenge to go and be a neighbor. Not to hang around waiting for someone to neighbor me. Not to hang around waiting to ask the question of, you know, who is worthy? Who can I actually, uh, who can I love? Who's who's okay? It's this wonderful quote from Thomas Alilut. <laughs> this wonderful quote from Thomas Merton the Trappist monk he says our job our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they're worthy that is not our business and in fact it is nobody's business what we are asked to do is to love and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy it's not about stopping to inquire whether or not people are worthy that's not the point who is my neighbor that's not the point. The point is to take that question internally. How can I be a neighbor? And I can be a neighbor because I've been neighbored. I can reimagine the way I understand myself and I can grasp that agency. And because I have a sense and a connection with God, I can look down on the ground and I'm, and I'm led to not just step over the half-dead person. Something is happening within me, and I can't see the world differently anymore. I can't ignore the half-dead bodies on the road down to Jericho from Jerusalem. I can't stay shut up in my little ivory tower and pretend that it's all about me projecting my piety and my holiness so that God will accept me. And it's not about me cutting off the people away from me that I just can't see. No, they just can't be worthy. They can't be good enough. They don't match the grade that I match. So I can't be neighborly to them. No, I am free to embrace my agency to just go and be a neighbor. What are the limits to that? Well, the parable seems to suggest that there aren't limits. Because the Jewish hearers would have said, well, I can't be neighborly to a Samaritan, let alone accept neighborly behavior from a Samaritan. That's a boundary we just can't cross. Jesus, like, let's have a serious conversation here. You're crazy, man. Do you know what these people have done to us? Are you insane? Are you mad? Like, that's just a stupid idea. We're not going to do that. Well, sorry for you. (laughs) The boundary to compassion does not seem to be set that narrowly. So who do I get to be a neighbor to? Well, anyone you pass on the road who needs help. Okay then, that's a rather broad category. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I'm so deeply, deeply challenged by that. Deeply challenged. Sometimes I think because, you know, I think to myself, well, I have to stop for every single person that I see. And I, and I think that there's a there's a fallacy in that that we need to be careful of because it's not about becoming a savior to everyone, but it is about grasping hold of your agency and being ready to help when you can. When you need to. And so I don't think I need to go and solve all of the world's problems, but I definitely shouldn't be ignoring the ones right in front of me. I definitely shouldn't be pretending that I can unsee what I've seen. People are hurting, people who are broken, people without food, people without shelter, um, people in prison, people, you know, some of this is literal and some of this is metaphorical. Uh, People whose marriages are breaking down, whose relationships with their siblings and their parents and their children and uh, their friends and our greater sort of way of being globally with each other as humans. All of these kinds of things we need to be paying attention to. We can no longer go. It's not my problem. It doesn't fit my little outward reality. I'm going to walk on by. I'm going to be a priest or a Levite. I just can't see that anymore. I just don't think we can be neighborly like that anymore. And I think lastly, as I said earlier, to be neighborly means to look for the connection, to look for the invitation, to be relating to ourselves, others and to God. I think most notably for me in our online environment, we do that terribly. I'm going to cover that. I said earlier, you can go and have a listen to the episode with John van der Laar and Dean Forster. We, we really talk about that in depth. But we've got to watch ourselves. We've got to be careful. We have to be so aware of our propensity and our ability to just set ourselves up for conflict and to miss that invitation for connection with the other. Why would they say that? Why would they react that way? How can I connect with them? How can I offer them a question that draws them in rather than sets me up to justify myself and slam down the hammer? Boom, I win, they lose. You know, we're we're just not going to make it as a human race if we are a collection of winners and losers. I just can't see it happening. And I think we need to be very, very aware of that. And I think that this story is a great vehicle to help us see that. So thanks for listening. I, uh, Jeepers, I'm, I'm so grateful for your time, your investment in this. I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been interesting. I hope it has raised questions for you. How do I go and be a neighbour? What are the practicalities? What are my boundaries? What can I do? What can't I do? What are my giftings? Uh, You know, I'm scared to do this. Um, How do I overcome my fear? Should I overcome my fear? Shock. There's so many things. You know, maybe you haven't thought of any of that. You know, some of this is just coming right now off the top of my head as I close up here. I hope you're left with questions. I hope you're left with wrestling. I really am. I'm challenged deeply by looking into the mirror of these two stories. I'm challenged by looking to to seek for connection over disconnect, to to look for a win for for both sides instead of an easy, cheap, I win, you lose. Uh, I'm looking for a third option rather than just the polarity that we see often, more and more the in-group, out-group identity as it manifests. Sadly enough, really, I see it so much in, in the Christian church, it's, it's a deep sadness to me that it's so easy to just go the easy route in-group, out-group. And so I really hope that this has left you with questions, queries, comments. I'd love to hear from you in response. Uh, Give me a shout. Um, Give me a call. You can get hold of me. I'll I'll leave some things in the show notes here. Uh, Email address. You can get hold of me on Facebook. Uh, You know I'm relatively present there as well. Would love to know what you think. What, What was challenging? What do you not want to accept? What do you want to run and hide from? What do you think is just Rubbish that I had to say. I'd love to know that if you know where where you stand and if we can set ourselves up in a way to really listen to each other, to accept the invitation to come close, to connect, to ask good questions, love to do that with you. Um, So, thanks. Thank you to you, the listener. Thank you for your time. Uh, I want to wish you a blessed rest of your December. If you only listen to this episode and you've made it this far, bless you. May you be filled with this waiting, with this waiting to to realize and acknowledge again and celebrate again that Jesus is born into this world to come and be our neighbor. He's born to be close to us. Uh, He is born over and over again, I believe, in our hearts. We are carriers like Mary of the baby Jesus. Uh, And there is this invitation for us to follow and to become like Jesus. So go and live and love deeply. Thank you for your time. So appreciative of some of the feedback I get from some of you guys once you've been listening. God bless you, be safe, look after yourselves, look after others, look out for those people on the road. And let me encourage you, let us all, myself included, let us go and be neighbors. Let us go and be neighbors. So, I'm going to love you and leave you. God bless. Ciao.